Welcome, everybody, to the final episode of Season 1 of JudoCast. I want to give a huge thank you to all of the listeners. I hope that you've enjoyed our interview so far, and I hope that our stories and our talk about judo can provide you with some value or at least some motivation that you can take back to the mat so you can have a positive impact on all of those around you. If you're enjoying the podcast so far, the best thing you can do for us is share it. If you run a judo club, I would love it if you can share it on your social media and maybe even send an email out to all of your members and ask your families to listen. I think anyone who listens to these stories is going to be more motivated to chase their judo dreams after listening to an episode of JudoCast. And I want to give a quick shout out to all of our A-list rock stars that, that made season one a possibility. Um, we couldn't have done this without you, and I, I really appreciate all of your help. Mike Swain, Keith Nakasone, Anne Maria DeMars, Aton Gelber, Justin Flores, Marty Malloy, Nicholas Gill, Nikki Adams, and of course, Neil Adams, who hosted me on his podcast last year and ignited the fire that I needed to get JudoCast up and running. So be on the lookout for some amazing guests in season two. It's coming to you very soon. And without further ado, please enjoy the final episode of Season 1, and thank you again for listening to JudoCast. This is JudoCast. We go to the mat and beyond with some of the most prominent minds in judo. Please welcome your host, a two-time Pan American champion, entrepreneur, and judo enthusiast, Chuck Jefferson. Our next guest is currently the CEO of Judo Canada. He's had a lifelong journey that has taken him to the highest levels of Judo in both competition and coaching. He earned his first Olympic medal at the age of 20 in the 1992 Barcelona Games. Over the next 12 years, he would go on to win medals in pretty much every major event around the globe. Highlights include five Pan American titles, three world medals, and two Olympic medals. His achievements rank him among the most accomplished Judo players in the Western Hemisphere. He had one of the biggest honors an athlete could have when he was chosen to represent the Canadian delegation as a flag bearer during the opening ceremonies of the 2004 Olympic Games in Athens. Today, he will share some of his wisdom from competing, coaching, and parenting. We will hear how an expanding family made him take a hard look at his time in Judo. This led him to his most recent position as CEO of Judo Canada. He has fought for Olympic medals, and he has coached for Olympic medals, and now his Canadian judo program is catching the attention of program directors and other coaches all around the world. Please welcome the most prolific judo player to ever come out of Canada, four-time Olympian and 2000 Olympic silver medalist, Nicholas Gill. You haven't aged much. I, I try not to. <laughs> you look good as well, man. It's good to see you. Thanks for uh, thanks for doing this. My so, pleasure. So I'm going to start off with something uh, very serious. Um, I've got to give credit where credit is due because I stole something from you guys years ago, and I'm going to take the uh, credit yep. for bringing this important thing back to the west coast of the United States, and that is called uh, Piggy. <laughs> so yeah, man, Piggy, 
I think I was training up with you guys sometime in the late 90s, and uh, we did make some adjustments to the game. Don't get me wrong, because if I... <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> it was a pretty brutal game the way you guys used to play it. I'm not sure how things have gone now, but it used to be lightweights versus heavyweight, I believe. Um, so we had to make some adjustments when we went back to San Jose to keep things a little safer because it did get a little intense. But uh, the piggy game, I think, has gone, you know, I think it's all over North America now, but you guys can definitely take credit for the piggy game in, in Montreal, I believe. Yeah, I think I was uh, probably 13 or 14 years old when it all started. I was uh, I witnessed the uh, the first and original piggy, and it's called piggy because it was made of out of a, a little piggy bear, pink piggy bear with tape. I was lying at the dojo one day, and somebody said, "Let's make a game." And since I was, you remember how violent it could be. That's right. And I was. 50 or 54 kilo uh playing with full up grown up men <laughs> so i eyed in the net i played goalie so it was the only way i would survive those first couple of years so <laughs> wow so and piggy's been sudden, around longer than i thought yeah 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 it's like uh i would say about 1985 but it's uh it, it died along the way anyway at the national team because we just had too many ACLs, <laughs> serious injury. As, <laughs> uh, I guess the, the younger generation got more dirty or less uh, uh, resistance. I don't know which one. That's true. You know, because when I was... In the day, there was no injuries, but it, it, it just became too dangerous. So we, uh, I, I was there for the first game and i was there for the last game <laughs> oh, that's great so i i think they're still doing it i i do it with my kids in my club even and they love doing it but i remember yeah. at one point at san jose state when i was coaching um i was a young coach at the time and and our coach mr achita he hated it you know he's a you know yeah. even then he was in his mid to late 80s <laughs> he would walk in and he would just kind of kick our goals out of the way and kind of end the game and one time i got i got hit in the eye with a ball we, we played with this small ball hit me in the eye. And it was one of those things where if you've ever been hit in the eyeball, it like was a quick sting. And then my eye went kind of blurry and I'm like, Oh my God, I can't see out of my yeah. eye. So I'm supposed to be running the practice. He's walking in 15 minutes late. I'm bowing <laughs> off the mat. He's like, where are you going? I'm like, oh, I got to go see a doctor. <laughs> I didn't even want to tell him how I got hurt, but uh, he hated the game and there was definitely some injuries yeah. uh, along the way. So um, yeah, I think the no more of the national team, but it's kind of everywhere in America. So <laughs> yeah, everyone's doing it. it. You know, it's it's all about bringing energy to the practice. You know, the kids, if you do the same thing, you know how it is. You know, trying to build a program, you do the same yeah. thing over and over. They just don't enjoy it. But my kids yeah. seem to really love playing piggy. Right now, we're training outdoors, so we do outdoor piggy, which is a lot of fun and just gets the kids running around and. You really do get warm as long as you don't get injured. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, you're you're right. You know, getting the I mean judo is a tough sport, right? So uh sometime you walk in the dojo and your body doesn't feel like it. So a little boost of energy before starting is uh is always good. For sure. So uh Nicholas Gill, what is uh what has Nicholas Gill been up to for the last like 10, 15 years, other than the obvious of you know, being part of such huge success from the Canadian national team. But uh, what has Nicholas Gill, the person outside of judo, been up to for the last 5, 10, 15 years since I've been around you? You know, I kind of stick to what I did for, for numerous years, coaching and uh, gay business. And, you know, it was a bit uh, uh, 
uh, how do you say, uh, continuation of my career as an athlete uh, until uh, about seven and a half years ago where I got my daughter and okay <laughs> that i discovered what life was for sure <laughs> so i had to <laughs> and then my son arrived 18 months exactly 18 months later wow uh and both kids weren't really planned so <laughs> okay <laughs> i had to get my <laughs> the sad truth so uh i got I had to get my life organized uh, don't get me wrong i don't i really don't regret it uh, uh quite the opposite uh, and uh, probably the only re reason I have kids is they weren't planned because I, <laughs> with the life I had, I probably could not did not have time to plan for kids. So, um, I guess it, it forced me to to think of what to do with my life. And uh, first decision was to uh, decide if I actually wanted to see my kids grow or not, right. uh, because uh, yeah. the life as a full time coach on the circuit doesn't give you much time at home. So after Rio, four years. I guess exactly quite four years right. ago, you know, I set up my mind to, to kind of let go coaching and focus uh, on a more administration uh, role at, at Judo Canada. You know, my, my, my mind was decided after, after Rio, I kind of stretch it and uh, barely survive all the way to the games. And uh, uh, I knew after, uh, you know, I would just leave to administration role. And uh, I was also, I was high performance director and, and coach and my boss at the time uh, resigned as a CEO of the organization. And I figured it was an opportunity for me to kind of change it up and have maybe a bigger impact on, uh, on the whole uh, practice of the sport in the country. Um, so since I guess October, 2016, uh, 16, I'm both CEO and uh High performance director for Judo Canada, and we're trying to. I guess we were trying to 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 grow and and get judo uh, larger. And the current pandemic is kind of throw a curveball at us, and right. uh, uh, sadly, we'll probably have to take a few steps behind and uh, uh, rebuild a little bit. But uh, I guess that's the the beauty of my role now. I'm have the control of the this the whole organization and the whole practice of 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 judo in Canada. So it's. A, it's a massive challenge. Uh, keeps me definitely busy, and it gives me an opportunity to actually see my kids. So <laughs> right, yeah, I think that, so that... I'm, cha I'm challenged, and uh, I'm uh, I'm happy at home. So that's that's uh, perfect. Yeah, that decision that you had to make is a tough one. I mean, I think a lot of people get faced with that same thing. And I was similar to you. I had a kid. My oldest son is 12. So for me, it was like fighting at the Olympic trials. And in 2008, my oldest son was born, you know, you know, about 10 days prior to that tournament. So oh. it was a, a wake up call. But it's like you said, you realize that, you know, there's definitely other things out there. And and for me, it was super easy. Of course, I was 32 at the time. So stepping away from competitive judo was pretty easy. But I also stepped away from any kind of elite judo. I just kind of started coaching local judo and staying at home all the time. So I could see my yep. kids, just like you're saying. So that's uh, that's a tough yep. thing. But so before we get back to like what you're up to now, let's. I want to kind of start in the very beginning and talk a little bit about you know your history. Did you start judo as a young boy? I started at six at six years old. Um, I had an older brother that started judo uh, a bit before myself, and I guess we did some in the living room, <laughs> right? Right. <laughs> uh, before I was six, so. Actually, I had a bit of training before my first real practice, uh, but you know it was uh, you know I, I didn't enjoy it necessarily. Um, 
the first moment my, my brother start you know teaching me moves and stuff and we're causing trouble at home and you know I was okay whatever uh, but the moment I saw my first competition uh, you know it was a really really small competition but I saw those kids on the map fighting and I told my mom I says okay mom I am ready I can put me in right <laughs> and at that time i was five years old so i was a bit too young so oh, wow. they waited for uh, a year to 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 get to the next semester and get, get me in and uh you know it's really competition that drove me uh you know two weeks after my first uh my first class i jump in in my first event and obviously <laughs> i got beat up after two weeks of judo i'm not quite ready to uh and i i, I kind of jump in because one kid was alone he was older bigger than me and i says mom put me in i'm ready and <laughs> and uh coach had then was crazy enough to say yes and uh see my my drive and my passion and he he, he pushed me to go for it and okay i i lost both matches it was, you know i still remember it was crazy battle because i i used to nosebleed easily so you know, there was blood all over the map. You know, my <laughs> I borrow a gi that was way too big, it was full of blood, and uh, I lost both mat matches. And I said, okay, next time I'll I'll, I'll get this back. And uh, you know, this is uh, uh, always a bit I I saw stuff. You know, I did not necessarily win uh, the first time around, but I always told myself next time I'll I'll get you back. <laughs> So that I think times are definitely different. I think I grew up in a similar situation where I joined a judo club and, you know, if there was a tournament within, you know, a, a few weeks or maybe a month or two from the time you joined, you're pretty much going to that tournament. That's the kind of club it was in the 80s. You know, yeah. everyone just competed. But I think what you just said, um, it's an interesting thing to think about when you said you lost and you didn't have the greatest experience in your first tournament, but you told yourself that you can do this and you want to come back for more. And I think it's hard to find those kind of kids. And I would be curious as to your thoughts working in being in judo your whole life. Is that a teachable moment? Or do you think that that's somebody that certain kids just have that grit and that desire to come back after a loss? Or do you think a lot of kids just take that and kind of give up? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a, it's a very difficult question to, to answer. And, they, you know, now with kids, I'm watching my kids. I'm trying to, to learn from my kids and see how they evolve and, uh, see you know what's genetic what's teachable and obviously with young kids you're around family and young kids and you look at other kids you look how their parents interact with them uh you know I, um my view is a lot is teachable but we and we forget what we we don't realize parents don't realize what they're teaching their kids um you know, kids, they, they learn from watching you. They feel they even, you know, at a very young age, uh, they observe, they catch on and uh, their behavior evolves uh, as they, they see their parents. And I think parents pay attention to what they say, but not necessarily what they do. You know, I think we don't realize the impact we have. You know, I think obviously there's a genetic here. Uh, but I think a lot can be teach if you you learn it long enough. Right. <laughs> if you start young enough, I, I guess I think you're, you know, it becomes natural. And, yeah. you know, I, I see my, my kids evolve over, you know, the they've been home for six months. They returned to school last week. That was a great relief for the parents. Right. Uh, 
but uh, you know i see my, my kids evolving by you know being uh with us more obviously and uh you know i can see my my younger son rubbing on my my, my daughter a little bit yeah. uh he's he's a bit rougher and he's a bit more competitive and or uh, you know at such a young age being you know 24 hours a day for six months of that she kind of <laughs> You know, <laughs> it was a question of survival, I guess. She had to adjust and uh, develop some, some, a bit more toughness. And uh, and then suddenly, you know, we see it when she's playing sport. Uh, once everything is is back uh, to more regular. So I mean, I think the daily impact at home is huge, and it's not necessarily what you say, but it's often what you do. And you know, one one key moment that in my life is uh, at Father's Day at daycare. Uh, my son had to write down uh, a little card, you know, with the, it was a little project. And uh, to my dad, da 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 da, and I was okay. What's your dad's favorite color? It's like blue. What's his and what's his favorite pastime? What what his view was? My favorite pastime was working. So <laughs> <laughs> not judo, right? <laughs> yeah, no, my favorite pastime was working. So I said, okay, that's all my. At the time, it was three of four uh see that's how you perceive me like you know what i do for fun is working so right i, I said okay maybe i um i'll teach him good work habit i guess maybe right uh hopefully anyway so i mean i think this is uh obviously not something i said to him but that's and that you know you, you have kids at three a conversation with a three years old are <laughs> yeah. kind of minimal. So, but still, you know, in his mind is that worked hard. Right. Uh, so whatever I said, you know, his perception w- was that. Right. So are both of your kids practicing judo at this point? You know, judo is just permitted as of yesterday since uh, the COVID uh, back in uh, in Montreal. So, But they are uh, judo players. We have done, uh, they did a little bit, nothing serious, a uh, few competition. I, we put them in competition with really few practice too. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think it was, uh, you know, they, they, they have to break the ice, I think, and they have to be, uh, I mean, we really push them to do one, and I, we told them after you don't want to do another one, uh, you know, you don't have, but you'll do one. Right. <laughs> and they end up doing a second one, but you know, let's see. I mean, the uh, they're very young, and you know, I look at my son, uh, what he can do on the mat, and what he can uh, his athletic skill set, and uh, at his age. Uh, I had done zero sport. <laughs> right. So he, he's way ahead of me. <laughs> Is there a point at your in, in your childhood growing up where you thought like, uh, you know, you decided to take judo more serious? At what point did you realize that, hey, maybe I was pretty good at judo or, you know, when is it that you figured you're going to take judo maybe to the next level? Well, I guess at day zero <laughs> in uh, the mind of a six years old, uh, I was going to be the best and that's what I was going to do. Right. Uh, uh, you know, at six years old, I knew nothing. I mean, I wanted to be the the best of what I I knew. So my my first class, I I when we did the the bow in, I looked who was the lead of the class. I look at him. I said, I was the last one, the first one in. I look at the end of the line. I said, okay, that's the guy I'm going after. <laughs> that's awesome. So, and in my mind, there was no doubt that. I would not succeed. 
and so that's always been uh, uh, and, and I, it, it drove me all the way to an Olympic final and sadly there was one guy standing and there was not me <laughs> right yeah no I, I completely understand so did you have did you have family support like was your were your parents judo players or anything no my parents like I said my brother started before he stopped uh, when he was about university time okay uh, a few ACL and issues and he was not naturally so competitive so uh but my parents my dad played hockey when he was uh, younger my mom was really not the athlete uh but they supported me they supported they, they thought it was important for us to do sport but not necessarily on the competition uh, side. Right. Uh, and, you know, it was quite clear. My, my dad always told me, you know, if if you do what you have to do, I'll support you. You do not do what you have to do. You're, <laughs> you're on your own, kid. So, right. Uh, and, and, you know, I, I remember 19, uh, probably 1991 uh, was, I, you know, trying to qualify for uh, Barcelona and actually trying to be good in Barcelona. Uh, it cost a lot of money. And I remember, and it was, you know, my dad had to pay pretty much everything from my start of international career and in the uh, early nineties. And, you know, my dad made it clear. It's just, you know, I give you all this money and I'm going to spend all this money, but, yeah. Like for, first mistake, you're 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 off. So uh, he, he did not, you know, he said that in a in a friendly way, and then not uh, in a uh, how do you say that uh, um, negative way or uh, of some sort. It was his way to say, okay, you know, I don't care if you win or lose, but do it properly and do it hard. And uh, so I, I knew that I would get the support of my parents as long as I. I worked hard and behaved properly too. I think that, right. that was a given and not even a, a debate at home. So what was judo like in Montreal in the eighties growing up? I mean, if you compared the judo community, you know, from your memory as a kid growing up, you know, mostly in the eighties as a young boy compared to like, you know, judo in Montreal now, like number of judo players has judo grown over the years in, in Montreal or in Canada in general. Uh, I think the funny thing is probably the club structure did not evolve so much. Uh, I mean, really, I started in a very small club. It was like, uh, uh, and I moved to, to Shirokan when I was 13 years old. Uh, that's where it kind of uh, pick up more seriously. Um, you know, you compare it to judo now, then uh, back then, you know the big clubs are still the big, the same big clubs. There's a few new new clubs that produce athletes, but um, the st club structure really did not involve much. Uh, what evolved a lot more is national programs. Uh, right. And now we have, compared to your days, we we have the uh, much uh, greater national training center, a really proper facility in a, a multi sport surroundings, and you know proper gym and facility this uh, definitely the structure the budget of the national team is there's no comparison to to what it was um so you know it, it evolved in, in many ways uh you know i think the the but mostly at the top of the pyramid yeah I think, uh, from 
from a development, it always kind of been the same. Like kids start pretty much all over the place. They they get to a bigger clubs when they're teenagers, and you know eventually make it to the national training center. Uh, that pathway hasn't evolved so much. Uh, so I when you talk about budget, is that you know the increased budget? Is this is this primarily from an increase in members across the country, or where is where is the majority of your budget coming from? Uh, the the big difference is I think as the organization got more structure, the program got more structure, uh, the support from the government got uh, increase. Uh, the game changer in the history of, of Judo Canada, you know, obviously my, my result had some impact. Uh, you know, I would say mild impact to the global situation of the national team program. You know, obviously more impact on myself directly. Uh, but, you know, and the, the turning turning point of our structure is in London where Antoine Barouafortier won a bronze medal. Uh, it was a bit of a do-or-die games for us. Yeah. Uh, 2008 was uh, poor. Uh, and the way that the, the government funding works, you know, you, you got to get result. And uh, we had no result for, for quite a while. So right. it was our last chance. Um, if we were, uh, we weren't getting any result in, in London, we we're pretty much out of the government funding and or just get the minimum. Uh, so Antoine's bronze medal, um, huge against Travis, obviously more right. dramatic. Yeah. <laughs> well, 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 it was, you know, I, I mean, it was probably, uh, in, in the last 30 years, the, the biggest, uh, event, uh, that really changed the curse course of the organization, uh, for numerous reasons. So. We became, you know, a summer sport. I think I want to say any we're, we're in the top ten sport maybe of in Canada in terms of funding. So we get like real funding, and we have uh, four or five. Now we, we, you know, COVID create a bit of a situation with one coach, but normally we have five coach on staff and uh, full time physiotherapists. We we have a professional program. Right. Uh, and it, it was all on, you know, all this would not have happened without Antoine's uh, bronze medal. So for some of our listeners that may not know the history, let's back up just a, a little bit. You had some extremely high level success at a pretty young age. So in, in 1992, when you got your first Olympic medal, you were only 20 years old. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. So yeah. At, yeah. at 20 years old, like what was uh, what, the, the 20 year old Nicholas Gillette? Obviously, the confidence was there because you had it when you were six. So, you know, walking into yeah. the Olympics in, in 2000, you know, I, I, I think you had wins over like Nastula prior to that. I mean, but did you go into that Olympics thinking like you're a medal contender or was that like a big breakthrough event for yourself? No, I think the, the winter um, at the decent Paris. I beat uh, Joey Wanag, California yeah. guy uh, for uh, that was silver medalist at Worlds. I beat him in the second run or something. I lost the quarterfinal to Okada. Very close match. Uh, I was really frustrated uh, of the loss. I thought I could have won if I fought better. And Okada was the stud in '91. Right. He was like a, 
making all the covers for his throw on Joey at Worlds. And uh, yeah, uh, amazing throw. <laughs> and he was, <laughs> yeah, and he was an amazing judo player. I mean, you could see him at camp taking like the biggest guy out there and throwing him them like kids. And so he he, he was uh, uh, the the guy to beat. And I felt that I should have beaten him. Yeah. And so that that was a bit big. Uh, big day for me, and it gave me the confidence. I, I got injured in the Okada match at a crappy repechage, but uh, the couple weeks later was Munich. Back in those days, was the other big one. Yep, and it all kind of got in uh, uh, line up that day. I, I made the final, lost to Nakamura, the other Japanese that was world champion the you know, two years uh, the following year. Right. Um, so I beat uh, the German that was European champion and good wins on that day. So it kind of all fell in place at uh, that tour. At uh, good camps, I felt really good. The events leading to the games, I uh, medal everywhere. I won most of it. So I was going in, you know, I was going to be Olympic champion. And, right. Uh, you know, they kind of got lucky to... To win my bronze because I, you know, I was so disappointed to losing the semis that I was not so focused and I just went like, okay, whatever, you know. <laughs> yeah, some of the it just yeah. seems so hard for the the uh, loser of the semifinalist to bounce back and win that bronze medal. I mean, even today, I, yeah, I don't know what the yeah. numbers are, but it seems like a vast majority of the bronze medalists are people that came up through the repetition charge rather than losing the semifinal. Yeah, yeah, and, and for me, that was always very difficult, and you know the. Even if it's the Olympics, it's an Olympic medal on the line. I, you know, I, I, until I realized that the impact of the medal, I, you know, I, in my mind, I lost. I, I lost. I, there was no bronze medal or I lost. That's it. Right. <laughs> so, how did things change for you back home after you came back from Barcelona? Was there, um, like, I have some memories of you having like some sponsorships. Is that just kind of a, a faded memory? Was there was there support from athletic brands or like I, I part of me wants to say like there was some kind of Gatorade deal you had? Yeah. That- well, you know, things got obviously up to that point. My father was my sole sponsor, right? <laughs> and obviously, everything got much easier after. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Gatorade ad was. Uh, Somewhere after after that, uh, had a few deal like this, nothing major, but enough to make a decent living and right. and you know to get the burden out of my my father and my parents, obviously. And right. uh, suddenly, uh, Judo Canada was a bit more generous towards me right. too, so that that was really helpful. They, you know, the the you know for me, I I did not do it to. Uh, to get famous or, you know, I just did it for, for myself. I wanted to, to win and that's it. And uh, what Barcelona made me discover is suddenly, you know, people notice people uh, knew who I was. Uh, I pretty much, it was the first medal of Canada at those games. So it was like five days without a medal and all the big studs were finishing fourth and fifth and it yeah. was a, <laughs> a series of big deception and like the media were getting really critical of Olympic committee and, and out of the blue, you know, some random judo guy won a medal. And uh, so my, my face was on the first page of paper for two days until we start winning tons of medal. Then I disappear. But right. uh, <laughs> the, imp- <laughs> the impact was there. And, yeah. you know, 
that's definitely the the big change in my you know it's not only in my career in my life because suddenly and you know just to give you an idea i returned from barcelona i was going to school going to college you know i was with my backpack i was taking the 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 buses and the metro and the subway and you know i was just regular joe i thought i was regular joe right and you know when i stood in the the subway and everybody's looking at me and i turned the other side everybody's looking at me from that side too i'm like okay what's going on here wow and then i realized that oh you know kind of pretty much everybody <laughs> knows me yeah <laughs> so as as big adjustment for especially in judo, we were not used to get any media coverage, any spotlight, anything. And now suddenly um, everybody was uh, looking and every result or losses was in the paper. And so that uh, was a big adjustment. So uh, suddenly expectation. I was in 92, I was the young one of the team. And, you know, it was more like, oh, one day this kid's going to do something. And uh and it went to okay this this guy is our olympic medalist and right he's got to win everything now so yeah so the pressure is <laughs> on big, but i think change yeah what you said about like your mentality of you know not trying to be famous i think that's what separates judo from a lot of sports out there because i don't think anybody goes into judo thinking there's some kind of uh <laughs> some kind of big you know windfall of money at the end of this or fame you know so most every judo player no matter how successfully in most countries you know they're really just you know, out there doing it for the love of the game. And I mean, there's obviously some people in certain countries, you know, that are, you know, maybe like you would know more than me, but uh, yeah. some of the guys in France that, you know, like Teddy Renner, maybe, maybe he's making, you know, real money. But so from 1992, you made this medal. And then from from the outside looking in, you know, like as Americans, like from 92 to 2004, I mean, Nicholas Gill is in the finals or in a top five of, of most every event. If you're not in the top five, you had a bad day. So you're pretty much you know, fighting for medals at every major tournament for the next, you know, 12 years. I think, you know, at that, in the mid nineties, it was kind of you and I guess Keith Morgan was doing really well and starting to pick yep. up a lot of medals. And, yep. and the two of you guys, it seemed like from the outside carrying the team for, for many years. So it was, uh, you know, fun watching you guys do that. And then toward the end of your career, I know that it probably helped in your transition into coaching, but a lot of the younger guys started coming up in, you know, 2000 to 2004, where you're still competing and, you know, kind of mentoring the young people. But, but I also yeah. want to talk a little bit about 2000. Cause I think 2000 was, you know, it was a huge day for you, obviously 2000 and, and hundred kilograms was stacked, you know, and, and for you, I mean, you know, all the guys, but you know, there's guys like Zevi and Sabino, there's guys in the Pan American union, the Cuban, you know, Kovacs, uh, the, the Italian Guido, uh, Trainu and of course, of course, Inaway. So this is a division that's like just loaded full of people. And you kind of had the, you know, I guess one of the days of your lives. And um, I want to see if you can walk us through a little bit of, of what it's like. So a lot of us that haven't been to an Olympic Games or, you know, most people who haven't competed in Olympic Games, what is the day like? I mean, how much time do you have between matches? You know, it's, is it moving fast? There's usually only one or two categories at the most per day. And then you make the semifinal and you've got you know, Trey knew. So walk us through that day and what you were feeling and, you know, how was the energy moving that day? Uh, yeah, well, 2000 was uh, quite, uh, you know, I compared to 92 or 96, it was a complete different approach, complete different. Uh, this time I knew what I was doing. Right. <laughs> you know, 92, I was just a young punk, you know, and I, I knew nothing, but I thought I knew it all. And, 
Uh, luckily, it was good enough to win a medal. In 96, I wanted so much to be Olympic champion that I, my brain was racing way too fast for my body. And I, 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 you know, I just could not perform like I could because uh, I was not in the right state of mind. And 2000, well, you know, I learned it from uh, all those experiences. Uh, I'd come back from ACL surgery. I moved from 86 to... 100 kilo, you know, kind of uh, with the switch of from 95 to 100 was kind of a jump. So, you know, I, I sort of, I was kind of ready to, in the the last four years before Sydney, I was ready to to call it a quit at some point where I, you know, I says okay, uh, and decided to make a last push of it. So it, it was really, uh, I think a. a I was really doing it for the right reason. You know, for me, it's clear that in 2000, I was much weaker than 96 and 92 as much less of an athlete that I was in those days. But I was much wiser and uh, I actually knew what I was doing. Right. <laughs> so, you know, I was not 99 worlds. I was, I was good. 2000, I, I was average, I would say, physically. I was not as sharp as I, I could. Big difference also the Olympic setup, uh, more time between weigh-in and fight. Uh, and I, uh, in those years when I was fit, I was 97 kilos. So I was stepping on the bat, giving maybe five kilos to pretty much everybody, or at right. least five kilos. So I was I was light. Uh, so that makes it a bit harder too. But yeah, so the I knew from Worlds that uh, I would have you know. Uh, Jang, in a way, and myself would be spread in, in, in the draw, and it, it would be fairly easy yeah. <laughs> to make the semifinal. Okay. And, you know, to me, that was, I saw in a way, was on the other side of the draw. I says, okay, you know, let's, let's go through the draw and see who makes it on, on the other side and be ready for the, the semi. So, uh, you know, I really, the good thing, I did not have one easy fight. It was they were all like maybe on paper the weakest was was a guy like Sonamans that was European champion. It was yeah, all solid guy or Soros, the Portuguese, uh, all like European medalists or world medalists. So no easy fight, no um, no way I would think I had too much. Uh, probably the only time I start thinking ahead is in the semifinal against Treno. you know up to that point I kind of saw you know one match at a time and uh really did not try to just try to do what I had to do the fundamentals I needed to to win those matches in the semifinal I knew the four men that were left uh just like 92 for me there was no uh there was only one option was winning. It was not, yeah. it was either winning or winning or losing. So, so going into uh, uh, the semifinal, you got Trey new and this is, uh, this is the rubber match. So I think you had yeah. beat him two or three years prior in Paris. And then he had beaten you just the year prior to this in Budapest, I think. So yeah, good, good, good memory or good researcher. I don't yeah. know. <laughs> <laughs> the, for, for me, the, my, in my view and still in my view today, and because I, I train a lot with him, and for me, I, I was not worried at all about the semis. And if you actually, it's one of those fights I remember clearly. And and you know, one thing that came through my mind in the fight is at the same time the other semis was going on. It was Luigi Guido and Inoue, 
And, and I'm thinking, you know, during the mate, and I'm thinking to myself, I cannot be Olympic champion beating Guido. You know, <laughs> I, I, I there, that doesn't sound right, you know. And at some point, quite early in the match, you know, I heard the, the, the crowd jumping and a uh, big boom on the mat. And I says, okay, now I can focus on my semifinal because I'll have Inoue in the final. Right. And that, the, you know, in, in some way, that was a relief. Okay. Uh, I just did not want to be Olympic champion beating Guido in the final. It was out of the question. It was not an option for me uh, because I would not be Olympic champion without beating uh, Inoue. Right. Well, you know, Treno was, you know, kind of sound bad to say that it was an easy fight, but yeah, you were on fire. It was an easy fight. Uh, you know, I scored a few times and it, the fight just went just as I planned and as I, I picture n- numerous time and uh, did not really do any mistake. And so, uh, you know, it was exactly where I wanted to be in the final against Inoue and uh, whoever wins that was going to be the best. So after you win the uh, semifinal match, what's it like in the stadium? How much time do you have? I mean, you go back, I'm assuming you're, you're there with uh, Nakamura or whoever it was Nakamura coaching you at the time. I mean, you've yeah, you got a yeah, little bit yeah. of time. How much time did you have? And, you know, talk about the energy and the pressure. And like, you know, this is like probably the final match of your career or possibly if you win it, you know, who knows what's going through your mind? Yeah. Well, for me, it was, um, you know, very, very comfortable time. Very, uh, it was exactly where I wanted to be. I mean, I, I was doing judo for the last 22 years to be exactly there. And the, you know, uh, I felt great. I've, you know, and the, uh, uh, this is definitely, even though it's not the ending I, I wish, but it's one of the, it's probably the greatest moment of, of my life, you know, and I was, uh, I had the opportunity to to just you know all I wanted is the opportunity to to, to be the best and I had it it was right in front of me <laughs> and for about two minutes twenty it was going great <laughs> right uh, but you know and in the first in those first two minutes or whatever how long it, it lasted you know I had a couple good shots. And it didn't not score. And, you know, I knew it, I would not have, you know, 10 shots of throwing Inoue. Right. And he was definitely ready. And, you know, I threw the best that I had. I managed to come in with a decent Kayaguruma. He figured out a way to spread his leg and block it. And then he, I tried to sketch him. And that was the big problem. It's the only guy I fought that could adjust to Uchimara even after I scashied him. Right. Nobody could do that. Yeah. Uh, I by- bypassed the leg and some way he was stopping halfway and spreading. And I, just nobody was doing that. Right. And, and, you know, if he's going to throw 10 Uchimara on me and I cannot scash him once, He's gonna throw me once. Yeah, I mean, and you've uh, you got you had, I, I cannot block them. Right, but you had the uh, you trained with him and fought with him. I think uh, you fought him multiple times, and also, I think I was at Tokai with you guys at one point, or we at least we you know we were 
at the same time at Toka. I remember watching you even train with him. So had you gotten your hands on him yeah. quite a bit over the years? I fought him in uh, an event five times, uh, Olympic final, world semis. Uh, I fought him, you know, I fought him at Tokai when I was an 80, I was a young buck at 86 kilo and he was a high school kid. And, you know, I remember I was, you know, already Olympic world medalist and I see this kid coming in with his backpack and uh, everybody is saying, oh, this kid's going to be good. And yeah. He's like, he's not even last, last year of high school, he was like 16 years old and, and I'm, struggling to get you know to maybe throw him once or twice in a round and he keeps coming and i'm thinking to myself thank god this guy you know we're two-way class apart yeah. at the time i was 86 <laughs> he was plus 95 and you know a few years later suddenly we're in the same weight class <laughs> yeah interesting but he you know he was uh he was a uh, hard working uh from day one uh I, I remember, you know, he was the first one at practice with his, uh, you know, much younger than everyone else, did not say a word, did everything, uh, came after me like a madman. You know, he had like uh, very strong work ethic. Uh, and, and, you know, I, I must have did fought him five times in competition. I must have done, you know, 50 rounds in training with him. Okay. Never back down, never always great spirit always it was uh you know it was a fun round to to do it was uh uh you know there's some guys they're not they're not so fun or sure. not necessarily the most enjoyable to do <laughs> rounds with and uh you know it was a great round to 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 train with and uh, uh you know obviously if i throw him he wanted to throw me back and vice versa and uh so um, it was yeah. definitely a great, was a great guy to do judo with. Yeah, great rivalry to look back on your careers. When it comes to judo, Nicholas Gill has done it all. During his career, he had an amazing rivalry and friendship with Olympic champion Kosei Inoue of Japan. Now the world of judo sees both of these champions in leadership roles for their respective countries. The best champions always have more to offer. Over the last 14 years, Nicholas Gill has been coaching and mentoring athletes, playing a vital role to take Judo Canada to the next level. In this next segment, he will discuss his relationship with his lifelong coach, Mr. Nakamura. We're also going to take you behind the scenes of the 2012 Olympics when Antoine Vallafortier won the Olympic bronze over American Travis Stevens, who four years later captured his own Olympic medal with a silver in Rio 2016. We're going to get a glimpse of the athlete funding program that's currently in place for today's Canadian judo players. And then Nick is going to offer some advice to America on long-term development plans as he reinforces the importance of having a common goal when trying to build a successful program. He will then give us his take on the magnitude of the opportunity that American judo has as host of the Olympic Games in Los Angeles in 2028. So now that you've been coaching, you've kind of gone through, you know, many years of coaching at the highest level and you, I think it's a little bit easier to look back now on the coaching that you had. I, I spoke with Neil Adams last week and he was speaking, you know, very highly about you and Nakamura sensei. So looking back now as a coach, I mean, you had Nakamura sensei, I think you said since you were 12 years old, 
and it seems like he was side by side with you right through the you know the peak of your career so can you say a few words about your relationship and you know some of the things that maybe that you learned from sensei nakamura over the years well you know technically he's a very sounded uh coach i think that was really important uh you know from a coaching perspective, I think you have the knowledge that's obviously is key. And from a North American perspective, I think it's not always there. Uh, we don't have such a great history uh, of judo compared to other nations. So to be able to rely on, you know, world-class technical coach uh, uh, at an early age is tremendous. Uh, but on top of that, you know, he had... Uh, you know, I ambition. And, you know, as much as I, I, I made a few comments about for me, how important it was to win. Uh, we shared that same desire to win. And it was in his mind, it was never good enough. Right. <laughs> you know, even when you won, it was not good enough. So, you know, it was, uh, uh, and, you know, winning once was not enough. Winning twice was not enough. So, he always had that drive to to push you and and challenge you and, and for me it was it is it was something important you know i i needed somebody that was driven uh that i that had very high uh expectation and goals because i had it for me so I, you know i would not have tagged along somebody that uh, uh would have been very happy for you know a couple wins and you know it was Right. I needed somebody that was that that could match this desire to win, uh, and also the you know the passion of judo and and somebody that wanted to be on the mat every day and, and so on. So, um, you know, I think this was just you. If we go back to Sydney when he he gave me the draws, you know, he came back to the village with the draws and is. You know, you know, I said most of my rounds were most of my my fights were you know world medalists, Olympic uh, or uh, European medalists. And when he gave me the draw, he told me his exact word. I'm not sure where I can quote him, but it, it was "Don't get up." So, <laughs> <laughs> it's... so in, in his mind, there's no doubt I sh I should be in the final against Inoue, and you know th this was exactly what I. I needed, you know, I was not the type of athlete that needed to be, uh, to have it sh sugar coated or, right. uh, taken by the ants, but I needed somebody that could match the, the desire to drive and the ambition. And, uh, uh, and you know, that's he, he, over the years, probably very difficult for certain athletes to, to handle, uh, because it was never, <laughs> never good enough for him, you know. So, right. uh, you know, special character, uh, you know, still every day at the dojo, and he will be there until his his last day of his life, I think. And, yeah. uh, but you know, this drive, uh, I I needed that, uh, and really, if he did not have it, I I would not have stayed. I think it's really special to have someone like. Sensei Nakamura that's there for so long like he was just part of your journey for such a long time and I think it's rare yeah. for an athlete at your caliber to to get somebody that's there I mean from your childhood all the way through the end of your career with that same coach you know whether he was able to give you technical advice at the end that you didn't already 
know or hadn't heard before, but it's something about that support structure that having somebody side by side that you know, you know, cares for you as much as anybody out there. And I think that's got to give you a lot of confidence out there, you know, almost, you know, fighting for him, you know. And, and, you know, especially it's a good point at the end of my career, you know, I did not need much. uh, But sometimes, you know, reminders here and there uh, makes a a big difference and and goes a long way. And I knew if, you know, he's going to say something, it was because it was needed. You know, he would not uh, overly speak. uh, And sometimes just, you know, one signal was enough to to, you know, shake my head and say, yeah, fuck, what did I do? (laughs) Right. So as a coach, um, let's talk a little bit about your style. I mean, you talked a little bit about, which it seems to me probably the pinnacle of your coaching career is, you know, coaching Antoine to his bronze medal in uh, 2012. And uh, that, that was a big moment for, you know, North American judo. We were all watching these things and, you know, maybe if you can walk us through, you know, Antoine, like I said earlier, he came out the backside uh, through the repa charge, and I'm sure you guys were back in the warm-up room watching the semifinal match with uh, you know Bischoff and and Travis, and that was you know an interesting match. You know, one of the most you know aggressive. You know, not the prettiest match in the world, but yeah, it took a lot out of Travis. So, can you tell us what was uh, what was going through your mind, or any kind of advice that you had given Antoine leading up to that bronze medal fight? Well, uh, Antoine, not. You know, in a very similar fashion than myself in 92. Uh, kind of broke through uh, in a kind of subtle fashion uh, during that winter season. And, you know, by Olympic time, he was really good. And he was really fit. And uh, he had uh, quite a difficult draw with... Mamadli in the first round, I was Olympic champion. Yeah. Uh, you know, he first he had no buys, and so he had Olympic champion, world medalist, world medalist in his first three fights. Uh, but Antoine was just, you know, the big difference between Antoine and myself is Antoine is easily coachable, and I'm, right. <laughs> I wasn't. And so, you know, he. Well, it was, a, I'd say, a, a fairly long and slow process for him to get to that point. But uh, gradually, step by step, uh, he he managed to develop his judo, his physical skill set, uh, his mental skill set. He's not somebody that's naturally confident. You know, he's, I'm sure he would never say, I look at the top of the line and I say, I'll get this guy. You know, it's not, right. he, he needs his confidence to be, slowly build up uh he's more the opposite oh I, you know those guys are too good i cannot beat them and you kind of have to lead him to believe he's going to beat them and but uh over the years what you know we did not know in in london uh, i will not be lying and saying like oh i knew it all along but he is one exceptional athlete when it matters right um his record against certain player is like uh, like he against uh, Pietri. I think he's two and seven, but he beat him at Worlds and Olympics. And against Penalber, he's one and six, but he beat him at Worlds. Right. Uh, when he beat 
Travis at the Olympics, he had lost, I think, his seven last match against him. Right. Nobody does. Nobody does that. Yeah. Uh, nobody turns it around systematically when it matters. Uh, you know. In more times, it's actually the opposite of that. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So you know, he had this skill set. Uh, that you know, and in, in London, he turned it on and. He was tremendous. His judo was incredible. His, he used, I don't know how many throws on that day, and he just find, you know, he used the throw he needed in every fight and uh, kind of got whoopsies by Nifantov. Uh, you know, we, we, we knew it It would be like tough match after tough match. Uh, uh, you know, a few surprises. Repishage final against Lucenti was a bit... Uh, game changer as he beat Schmidt along the way that kind of uh, opened up a little bit the draw. But uh, so did know. he? Did he fight the uh, Repicharge uh, final before Travis had fought the semifinal? Yes. So and after it, it was, and that was his worst fight of the day. He uh, he did not fight this Repicharge final. The only fight he was supposed to win on paper that was his worst fight on that day. Right and. Yeah, and then you know, the, from our perspective, the Travis and uh, and uh, Bishop, we actually wanted Bishop for Browns because Antoine had such a bad record against Travis, and you know, so we're watching it and we're we're cheering for Travis, <laughs> right? And you know, I'm thinking and, and trying to keep in you know his mind in, in line and say, well, you know. It's not done. It's not over. You know, still lots of judo. And I did not want him to, to okay, Travis to lose. And then, you know, not wanted to fight Tra Travis for bronze and be in the wrong state of mind. So for the whole, whatever, 10 minutes, he's like cheering for, for Travis to win. And, you know, Travis lose. Yeah. And he turns around and he looks at me. Okay, it's Travis. And I said, oh, okay, he's got him. Yeah. <laughs> and so, yeah, so I, I don't know how he does it, like, forever. So he, How much time did he have he's from ready the... ready for Bishop, maybe half an hour. Half an hour. So And Travis had that hard fight. So you guys must have known, like, we got to turn on the heat because Travis is going to be tired. I mean, it's not – 30 minutes is not a lot of recovery, yeah. right? Yeah, and, you know, but it, it's how Antoine was – uh, able to shift from like playing his old fight against Bishop because he's sure Travis going to win it. Yeah. And, you know, fully focus on Bishop and turn it around in half a second. It was, okay, Travis. <laughs> and he fought a great fight and the rest is history. And the, the, the funny thing is the next fight, the next fight they fought that, I think it was Pan Am team. And I told Antoine, I say, Antoine, you know what everybody's going to say about you if you lose to him. And I say, they all got to call your Olympic medal fluke. That was my coaching before this fight. <laughs> They'll all laugh at you. You only beat Travis because he was dead. Right. You'll be, you'll be nothing. <laughs> I say, just go beat the crap out of him. Yeah. And he didn't say a word. He looked at me and he just went and beat him up. <laughs> Yeah, and, and after that, I, I, we never lost to him. 
Right. And he's also, I mean, just had the, the time of his life since that fight. I mean, since that fight, I mean, he's like you were between 92 and 2004. I mean, he's a medal contender yeah. at every single event that he goes to. And, and he's been, he's been on fire. So, uh, yeah. so I know that he's had a, an injury and come back from an injury and, you know, I guess timing, you know, for someone like him, it's this uh, one year delay might actually be good for him. Right. To, you know, come off of his injury and have that extra year of, you know, prep time for 2021 yeah. it is now. But um, I want to talk a little bit about some of the things that you're doing now that you stepped down from the actual day-to-day coaching and, you know, you're running the Canadian judo program. You know, we have this sense of jealousy down here in the South of, of the things that you guys are doing because you guys have been making headway. You guys have been doing amazing jobs with all different aspects of judo and the organization and, and obviously the success on paper. And, you know, you guys have been doing really well. So can you talk a little bit about, I know this is kind of generic, but there's a lot of talk right now. The United States is putting out their new uh, long-term development model. Mm-hmm. We're only about 15 or 18 years behind the Canadians, I think. Um, but I remember <laughs> you guys, you know, putting this out and the long-term development models are not going to answer all the questions, but could you fill us in a little bit about, you know, when you guys implemented it, you know, one is, did any of the clubs really follow it? Do the clubs follow this program? And, and do you think you can relate any of your success to this program that you guys kind of put into play 10, 15 years ago? Well, yeah, I'll be honest. I, I would trade the long-term development plan for uh, Olympic Games in seven years or eight years. I mean, this is a massive uh, tool or motivation to, to you know, people uh, don't react to, you know, they don't do what you tell them. You know, you say, I implement that, they won't. But... Having the Olympics at home, I mean, I think there's uh, no better uh, motivation to to drive a system. Uh, and you know, over the years, you see countries not taking that benefit. Uh, you know, for us Canadian, that's my biggest fear: is the U.S. take L.A. as the drive and you know transform. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it will help us in a way. But California is far from here. Yeah. <laughs> so it might be difficult to to tag along on, on this drive. But, you know, I, I would say if I have an advice to say, I mean, LA 28 is, is the key. It's the drive. It's what can make people change. Because changing is not easy. People do not like to change, do not want to change. Right. Um, so, yeah. So long term for us. It was a hard sell. Some clubs buy in, some don't. Uh, you know, we structurally, we make lots of changes. Uh, you know, we have, uh, I think, generally speaking, a much stronger structure than we had. Uh, but it's never-ending battle. Um, you know, we we have 13 provinces uh, that wanted their waste. You know, we have 400 clubs that wants it their ways and yeah so it's you know to line up uh everything is a constant battle and um you know you need one common uh, motivation i think um and it's it's definitely a never-ending uh job it's not uh, putting a program in place it will run by itself 
Right. It's never ending, never ending work. Uh, people change, so you get new people at the table to to convince, and uh, success is helps. Uh, sure. I would say you know having you know in some uh, like the the one thing that I was told in 2012 because that's you know from the 2008 to 2012 that's where some of the changes operated and you know everybody was waiting for London to be over to get rid of me <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> because you know I push for too much changes and you yeah. know so the uh, when I went to the annual meeting uh, after London, you know, the few of my friends, I said, well, I'm not happy for Antoine. I'm happy for you because now all the person that wanted you out are stuck with you. So, right. So you, <laughs> so uh, of the 13, uh, yeah, of the 13 provinces, how many, how many of those provinces have coaches that are kind of working together as province coaches that report directly to the national training center? Um, we have three centers that we have, uh, uh, you say report to, uh, one in Vancouver, one in Ledbridge, Alberta, and one in Toronto. So those are our main uh, regional centers, uh, you know, that work in line with the organization where we try to direct the, the younger athletes. Um, you know, we, we try to, the base of our program is to have, I, high school kids to stay at home and after high school to move to the national training center. So that's the, our country makes it difficult to do anything different. Uh, language and school system is different from one province to the other, making it quite difficult for certain province to move. Right. Um, but you know, at university, it's a lot more uh, standardized. So, um, that's, that's the base of our system. Um, it's, I think it's it's going uh, fairly well. It's not perfect, obviously. Yeah. Uh, definitely help the development and help our uh, result at younger age group. Um, I think the, the, the cadet and junior, uh, you know, from one year to the other, the results shift a little bit. But overly, they've been quite competitive. And we had, you know, uh, quite a few world medals at the cadet and junior level. Um, so that's, you know, a good sign from um, from the structural uh, uh, side. Because, I mean, this uh, at that age, you know, kids are coming from a bit everywhere. And it really, really requires to be... Um, to be lined up in, in a proper structure to 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 uh, keep those kids and, th and that's the other thing it's like those uh, great performer at a young age they gotta stick to judo and they gotta uh, move move along the the, the pipeline and move right. to the national training center eventually you guys have done a really good job of keeping you know your former athletes involved you know you know hiring guys like sasha and um you know, for quite some time, you guys had Michael Almeida that was that was uh, coaching with you guys. And have you guys mm -hmm. have you officially filled your your men's head coach position yet? Uh, no, we. Uh, uh, I mean, decision was taken not to be to fill it before Tokyo, and then uh, with <laughs> games postponing, it kind of throw a curveball at us a little bit. Uh, the, the, uh, or at me <laughs> because I. I, I 
I was going to step in for to fill in the the gap and you know uh, help Antoine for his last stretch and uh, help Sasha with the with the team. So uh, now my my sort of comeback got extended. <laughs> there you go. So any uh, that was not planned. Right. Any breaking news? Anything that uh, you can share with Judo Cast here of of who you guys are considering? Anybody you're negotiating with or people you'd love to uh, bring in to fill that position? Uh, no, no, not yet. We'll wait for the actual Tokyo cycle to finish All right. and we'll see who, who's, who's competing, who continues retiring. And, uh, you know, I think, um, you know, a lot long-term success will, we have to rely on, on homegrown athlete and, uh, uh, coaches too. Yeah. And, you know, it's such a big factor when the person is, can be committed long-term uh, knows the culture, uh, knows the system, uh, much easier to, 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 uh, teach them to be a, a great coach than actually, uh, teaching the culture and, and the system to, to an already, uh, a mature coach. So, um, you know, foreign coach is, is great. They can fill a role, but long-term we, we need, we need homegrown, uh, staff. Yeah, it's nice seeing someone like Sasha playing a big role. And I know I, I was talking with Nikki Adams, and she was like super proud that I think Sasha had come from uh, his the club he grew up with as a kid. I guess was uh, somewhere where Nikki was coaching at the time, so she was yeah 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 super excited to see him you know yeah. doing well and you know playing a big part in all the success that Judo Canada is having. Well, it's it's tough jobs, you know. It's a lot, the world circuit is really demanding, and. You know, it's when families start. Sasha had his first kids. Let's see yeah. <laughs> if we survived kids number two. Yeah. So how does, um, you know, in the United States, we talk a lot about the IJF circuit. And this all changed right when I pretty much retired 2008. The IJF tour got super organized, you know, with the Grand Prix and World Cups and, you know, Grand Slams. And that whole thing is, I think, amazing for the world of judo. But I think it's uh, caused a little bit of you know, difficulty for a lot of nations trying to promote judo within their own countries. So how does the IGF tour impacted like the Canadian national circuit? I know you guys have like a, a national points race and stuff and how relevant yeah. is that? And, and do your, do your top athletes still fight in national tournaments? Do you mandate that? And how do you guys handle that whole situation? Well, the, the national event for us is mostly for uh, the focus is more for U18 and juniors uh we you know some seniors younger seniors uh bc type players uh, are still in it uh the goal it's not made for our top players we don't expect you know once in a while it's nice to see our top players compete but um you know for for us it's not part of their their training or development uh but it's the goal is to make it uh, significant for younger athletes and to have, and, and you know, even for younger athletes, there's tons of competition worldwide, and you know, it's a big burden on, on parents. Yeah, uh, our budget is really focused on seniors. Um, so for us, it, it has two main goals is to uh, give opportunity for younger athletes developing, and you know, having them fight seniors. For, for 16, 17 years old, our, you know, national players, seniors are, are quite often relevant 
a competition for our top young guys. Right. And also it helps locally. Uh, we, we have the big countries. And, you know, just traveling nationally is demanding. So to have sure. a spread of event across the country and, you know, spreading the uh, traveling. Um, because making those uh, tournaments, uh, I would say, formal and official, it, it drives the participation, you know, uh in an area where normally it will be a bit more difficult to get uh, uh enough players to have significant events so right that's the participation has grown uh over the last uh, four years definitely i expect the next couple of years to be a big challenge but uh i think the the you know so far the model is has been quite successful it kind of uh, what it did, it kind of hurt the more uh, club. You know, you always had, not unlike the USA, like clubs event that for, for whatever reason had uh, a decent showing. And uh, it kind of killed a bit the private because they're mostly run by provincial association and their formal event. Right. Uh, so, but it, it, it rose the standard uh, of organization. Um, you know, they're all kind of run the same, same rules, same, you know, decent re referee. Uh, so, you know, yeah. every kid can have close by a decent, at least, you know, one decent event in, in their area and, uh, and makes it easier for us to, to identify, uh, players that maybe we would not, uh, see. Right. Um, so, but it, again, it's, it's a constant battle. Yeah. And, you know, there's always somebody that is not happy about something. So. Of course. <laughs> so can you share um, a little bit about your funding process? Like when you say, you know, it's mostly focused on the seniors, you know, what percentage of your, you know, your senior team across weight categories is supported financially and in, 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 in how much, you know, support are these athletes getting? Um, I know back in my day, a lot of the Canadian, you guys used to have a, like a card system of some sort. Right, yeah, um, yeah. Can you share with us how it works yeah. today? Well, there's uh, um, funding for athletes has two parts. There's one part is the carding is the uh, a monthly allowance for athletes that's coming straight from the uh, government. Uh, we manage it. We select the athletes and uh, we pass the list to the government. Then they receive uh, what in my days a check. Now yeah. <laughs> it's a bank transfer. <laughs> so how many athletes uh, are on that kind of program? We have 20 athletes receiving a monthly uh, uh, funding uh, out of that. We, ha we have split it uh, for juniors, cadet, and seniors, okay. three different age group. There's you know different criteria. They're evaluated a bit differently. Seniors get more money than the younger one. Um, and they have to be at the National Training Center to receive that. Okay. Uh, so that's one, one part of the funding. The other part of the funding is you know for competitions, staff and you know running the organization and it's based on our chance of meddling at the next two olympics so we're evaluated annually on our chance to perform at the next olympics and the following olympics so in this situation we and i have to get to work and prepare the pile of documents right uh in about in, in about a month to the government uh they will evaluate us our chance to medal in tokyo and in paris so 
you know, the, the, the big challenge is the day after Tokyo, you know, we get two medals, but they both retired and we have nothing behind is our chance of medal or Paris are slim to none. Right. Uh, so it's not, you know, obviously past result helps a lot, but it's future result that actually bring you the money. Um, you know, there's no way to predict the future, but uh, past is definitely a strong indicator. But if your top athletes all retired, uh, <laughs> it becomes a challenge. So, yeah. Um, so it, 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 you need you need to revamp your team all the time, and and uh, you know it it keeps you focused, and it helps the organization, helps the board of director, uh, um, you know, focus. I think because yeah. the message is clear, uh, the rules are clear, and it's uh, you know, funding is targeted is not for everybody. Uh, so you know. Uh, Antoine gets pretty much whatever he wants right. uh, as, you know, a lower rank athlete might get nothing. So right. uh, let's say on a given world, even at the Olympic team, you know, they, some will fully self-funded their qualification and some will be 100% funded. So it varies. Let's say Antoine, he gets funding as needed and some get zero <laughs> right yeah that's how life works and they might both they might might both make the olympics and you kind of as a manager of the program you kind of want the guy you funded to win the medal not the guy you did not funded <laughs> right yeah that can come back to haunt you a little bit so last last couple of questions before i let you go again i appreciate your time but if you had any uh, words of advice or any kind of advice that you can offer your friends to the South going into the 2028 Olympics for Los Angeles, you know, we have a lot of reasons. I've been using this podcast to kind of poke and prod around about, you know, reasons that we should really be focusing on 2028, whether it's because of the increased budget that we're going to see possibly, uh, and obviously the number of eyeballs that are going to possibly be on our sport that wouldn't normally be there. So it's a huge opportunity for us. And I want to make sure that, you know, the, the leaders of American judo and the powers that be are are doing everything possible to to grow our sport. So I just wanted to see if uh, if there's any advice you could offer the Americans, uh, you know, going into the next, you know, seven, eight years. Well, uh, I, I think what I what I see in my humble opinion, whatever it's worth, uh, you guys had very uh, much difficult time to work uh, as one. Um, you know, everybody is kind of on their side doing their thing and hoping to get the biggest part of the pie and um, and not actually focusing on, on growing the pie. Um, you know, simple. Uh, I, I say this often, you prefer having, you know, 20% of a 1 billion pie or 100% of a $50,000 pie. I mean, it's just it's obvious right yeah uh but to just take 20 percent share require you work with uh, the other 80 percent and as a cohesive group so i mean this is the uh i think judo in usa is exactly that you know everybody is uh king of their kingdom uh and the kingdom is you know some do better than others but uh, you know uh, definitely not 
as big as it could be if a small country like Canada can do better than the US with one tenth of the population I mean uh, <laughs> right. that says it all yeah <laughs> so I mean I think this is uh the you know it, it require commitment commitment and you know maybe you know uh, that's where I say yeah, I think you're right uh, LA can easily be a common goal. And if it's not, I, it will be the end of Judah in the U.S. Yeah. <laughs> you can quote me in 2029. Right. <laughs> when this is all said and done. Yeah, that's that's scary to think about. I mean, we really appreciate your advice. I mean, for for me, I've watched your judo career for, for many years. And even as a, the Lone Ranger at times, you know, I always tell people I, there was times where I was at events kind of by myself and I hung out with the Canadian guys and I've, you know, had, you know, people like you offering me advice because, you know, you were always there in the stands and, and a huge fan of judo. And, you know, yeah. you, you oftentimes knew more about most of my competitors than, than people that were sitting in my chair that day. And, and you were always, <laughs> you know, generous enough to share your advice and, and try to help. And that, that goes a long way. And I really appreciate that. But, um, you know, like I said, we, we do need to make some big moves going into 2028. And I, I hope that, something can happen and you know, we'll see, we'll see. I hope I, I hope that your quote is wrong and uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll see what happens. But um, last question before we go, um, Olympics are postponed a year. I mean, God, we hope everything actually happens. I mean, there's people whispering around that there's this chance that this thing doesn't even happen next year. And, yeah. and we all hope that that's not the case, but um, so going into the uh, 2021 Olympics, can you uh, let me know if there's any particular matchups, any athletes, other than the obvious of, of a Canadian athlete that you know is going to get there and do the job, but any other athletes or, or fights from around the world that you'd like to see next summer? Oh, boy. Um, I really, really did not think of that yet. I think the uh, – uh, I mean – yeah, I, I would say this. I think the uh, I sure hope that there's uh, an Olympic champion that comes out of the blue, uh, and you know I think everything is is there in the making for for uh, some random young buck that decide that that one year is going to be uh, the difference maker. Uh, Hopefully in heavyweight because that would be the biggest drama ever. Yeah, and you know some unknown heavyweight that actually wins it all for. Uh, I, I I think that that would meet that would make the the greatest story ever. And uh, um, obviously, I think a country beating Japan in the team event would definitely be. Uh, I guess. <laughs> that would be big. a great a great history for sure well nicholas yeah. um it's been an absolute pleasure i really appreciate you spending the time with us this afternoon um i look forward to seeing some big things from judo canada in the coming years and uh you know your friends to the south were always the we're the biggest fans of canadian judo and, and a lot of it is with a little bit of jealousy and envy that you guys have <laughs> have found success although we like to see it you know we just uh you know most of us here in the south we really wish we can kind of get things put together so we can kind of uh it would be fun to, to to make a big north american rival at some point you know and and uh yeah one day that'll happen but thanks again for your time i i really appreciate it nick thank you very much
All right. Thank you for listening to JudoCast. Please remember to hit the subscribe button on your podcast app. For show notes and additional content, visit judocast.com. That's J-U-D-O-Cast.com.